As we turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, I want to ask whether or not you all have heard people say recently that the world is more divided now, or our country is more divided now than it ever has been before. Just this week, I heard a gentleman who's much older than I was say that in his lifetime, this previous election was the most contentious and hostile election that he has ever experienced here in the United States. So I've not been alive that long. That's why it was helpful for me to say, has it, has it always been this way? And his answer was no. The last election he said that was this contentious was in the 1970s, but it still wasn't as bad as what we just experienced this last year and continue to experience in our country. The world is divided. Our country is divided. How about our churches? Should we be proclaiming and pronouncing a message of unity and love and peace to bring people together? That's what we want to consider this morning as we turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. If you have a black Bible, this can be found on page 1029. We're going to be considering the church in Thyatira. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I've entitled this message, A Healthy Church is Unified in Jesus Christ. The reason for that is it seems that the church in Thyatira has some good things going, but it seems to be divided primarily because of some teaching led by a woman who is a prophetess, as she calls herself. Jezebel is most likely not her real name. If you're a Jew or you know anything about the name Jezebel, especially in the Old Testament, it would be like naming your son Bin Laden or Hitler, like today in America. You wouldn't do that. Like, that would be really strange if you said, hey, I want to name my son after somebody who 
basically a lot of people despise. So it was with Jezebel. It seems like the idea here is that Jezebel is a nickname that Jesus is giving her as he speaks to say, she's bad. She's bad like the Jezebel in the Old Testament. So you could read through 1 Kings and read all about her antics and her wickedness, but here's one verse from 1 Kings 21-25. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. You see her reputation? Her legacy? There was no one as bad as the king of Ahab. And you know why he was bad? Because of Jezebel. So this woman was leading, in the Old Testament, her husband and people astray into sexual immorality and idolatry. And so that's why when he sees the church in Thyatira being led to sexual immorality and idolatry, he calls this prophetess woman in the church Jezebel, teaching and seducing my servants. That might be one of the more important words that we look at. It is Jesus' servants in the church that are being seduced, not people outside the church. This is not a conversation about unity with the church and the world together. This is about unity within the church and its members. And it seems like there's two groups. There's a faction between these Jezebel people and her children, which is probably her disciples, and then the rest of the church members. Did you notice that? Did you notice the way it says in verse 24, but to the rest of you. So there's two groups here in this church. There's a division between two peoples in the church of Thyatira. Now, to get this picture more clear, one of the things we can do is look at its historical context and realize more specifically what Jezebel was probably encouraging these church members to do. We know from studying our ancient history in the first century that Thyatira would have been a small trading city and you weren't aware that these letters, they start in Ephesus and they go to Smyrna and then Pergamum. This would have been a route that would have been a postal route. And so there's actually a historical common sense order for these letters. And so when you get to Thyatira, it's a smaller city in between two larger cities, Pergamum and then Sardis, which we'll see next week. We don't know a lot about it, but the things that we do know, two things that came up in all of my reading this last week about Thyatira were this. Number one, they were well known for being a distributor and making copper and bronze. Keep that in mind as you think about what we're going to hear later when Jesus refers to his feet being like brazen bronze, golden bronze. Secondly, these bronze workers were a part of what was called guilds. Now, if that's not a normal word you're used to using, let's just translate it to everyday language. Labor unions. You know, labor workers that work in the mines and the factories, and they're part of labor unions, and they have all these different meetings and societies and figure things out. Well, that's what was going on back then, except these labor unions, they had banquets, which included worship to the pagan gods Apollo and Artemis. They included cultic sexual immorality. Basically, they were group orgies because they believed by having these orgies, their God would please them or their God would be pleased with them and give them blessings. So put yourself in their shoes for a second. Small town, 
the main source of commerce and economy is going to come through the bronze and copper industry. And if you're going to be a part of that industry, you have to join the guilds. But if you're going to join the guild, you have to be a part of these banquets, and you have to worship a false god and eat food sacrificed to these idols, and then also participate in these orgies. What's a Christian to do? So it seems as if Jezebel is saying, I think we can compromise here, and it's okay. God knows your heart. You've got to take care of your family, don't you? How else are you going to make ends meet? Maybe part of the reason why Jesus commends them for their love in that first part of his comments in verse 19, I know your works, your love, your faith, your servants, and your patient, patient endurance, is that there are some, the rest, that are not giving in, and it's difficult for them to make ends meet. And so they're loving one another and serving each other through that difficulty. So there's that historical context that I think helps us realize the stakes that are at play in Thyatira. Difficult decisions that need figured out. If we remember last week, the task that God has given the church is to make disciples in all nations, in all different places. The church needs to be in all kinds of cities, even if it's not convenient or easy, so they need to stay put even when it's hard, and there's all of that going on around them. The church is supposed to preach the gospel, not be of the world, but in the world. And sadly, it seems that there is a group of church members divided amongst the rest who have given in and compromised. They have become of the world. So for the remainder of this message, I want to expound on two points about the unity of the local church that I see in this text. Two points about how a healthy church will strive for unity in light of all the division and divisiveness in the world around us and maybe even within us. Point number one. Unity in the church does not mean tolerance of all beliefs. Unity in the church does not mean tolerance of all beliefs. Let's look back down at our passage. Notice verse 19 says that I commend you. I know your great love, your faith, your servants, your patient endurance, Notice also that he says that the latter works exceed the first. It seems to be a little bit of a jab or a comparison to what we saw in the church in Ephesus. You had great love, but it's dwindled away. You have lost your first love. Not this church. Thyatira is growing in love. Their first love was small, and now it's bigger. Most likely... These grouping of words together in verse 19 of love, faith, service, and patient endurance is referring to how that they are struggling through the difficulties of the world around them. Every time John uses them in Revelation, grouped together like this, it's Christians persevering through tough trials, especially the persecution of the world around them. So Jesus speaks of the love that they have, and he commends them for this. They are a loving church. But what you're about to see in verse 20 does not make sense to our modern ears. The next sentence is not very politically correct. Jesus says, but I have this against you. I have against you that you're tolerating that woman, Jezebel. 
You're tolerating other religious practices. You're tolerating other beliefs. You see how this doesn't make sense to our modern ears? Isn't tolerance of other people's beliefs the definition of love? How is he commending them for love and then rebuking them for tolerance? That's what our world thinks love is. For example, I recently came across a church website in this area, the Chicago area that is, and this was the description on their front page of their website. People that attend our church come from more than a dozen religious traditions, including Buddhist, Jewish, Muslim, Catholic, different Protestant denominations. They are spiritual seekers of all ages, racial, sexual, and religious orientations, all are welcome at our church. The diversity of our congregation creates a stimulating, enriching community that fosters respect and compassion. When you see that plastered on the front page of a website, are you thinking, I want to attend? Or are you thinking, we should put that on our website? Or are you thinking this is a church that maybe isn't so good? In a world full of division and conflict, we're the most divided we've ever been, right? Shouldn't the church be promoting unity of all peoples and welcoming to everyone and try and bring peace on earth? Not more division. So would we ever put this on our website? It's not currently there, if you want to look. We don't have a statement quite like that. But I think it kind of depends on what you mean. So I don't know this church personally. I do know things about it, and I have a good idea of what they mean by it. What they don't mean is that there's a sense to which they want all people to feel welcomed in their church. I hope that all of you in this room feel that way. That you would like every single person that comes to Embassy Church to feel a warm, happy welcome when they're greeted at the door, when they're talked to after the service, as they interact with you throughout the week, that the people of Embassy are warm and welcoming and inviting to everybody that was just listed on that list of every different religion, every different perspective, sexual orientation, you name it. Is that true? Anybody want to say amen? Yes? Yes, we do want our church to be a welcoming church in that way. And so I sincerely mean this when I say, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, When I say this every week up front, that I want to welcome you, especially if you're a visitor here today, from whatever perspective you come from, there's nothing more that we would want as a church than to help introduce you to Jesus Christ. So I want to extend a warm welcome to you. We want our services to be friendly to you. There's a reason why we put the black Bibles in front of you, tell them which page numbers are. That's why I regularly say, look, the chapter number is the large number, the little number is the verse number. We want to assume that some of you don't know those things. A lot of you do. You've been Christians for a long time, but we would like this space to be welcoming to all kinds of visitors, no matter where you're from. But we want to introduce you to King Jesus Christ and submit everything to Him. My hope is that by this point in the service, even if this is your first time here, you're starting to get a sense that we love Jesus. We sing about him. We adore him. Everything in our lives has been changed by him. And having a relationship with him is the most important thing for us and you and everyone. Universally. 
This isn't just, oh, that's good for you, Embassy Church. That's good for you, Pastor Phil. No, this is good for everyone, including you if you're a visitor today. So we'd like to lovingly, gently, sincerely persuade, encourage, compel you to consider Jesus if you're a visitor. We do not want you to continue believing in Islam or deny the Messiah of the Jewish faith, Jesus Christ. We don't want you to stick your nose just in the Torah and forget that there's a New Testament. And on and on we could go. Do you see the difference? The difference is between tolerance in the world and tolerance in the church. Those are two different things. We as Christians should be tolerant of all kinds of people as we go about our work days and work weeks, live in our neighborhoods, and not feel like we have to just beat people over the head with our beliefs. I'm not espousing or encouraging any of those ideas. We can be tolerant of different religious beliefs, agree to disagree with our neighbors, love them, tell them about Jesus, pray for them, and let God take care of the rest. We don't force anybody into conversion. We don't put guns to people's heads. That's what Muslims do, at least the radical ones. We as Christians are free to be tolerant of all kinds of different lifestyles, gender identities in the world. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 5 and 6. We are not to judge those outside the world. But if we're going to have unity in the church, we do require allegiance to Jesus Christ if you want to call yourself a member of this church. So I want to make it clear there's a distinction between if you're here today and you're a visitor, that's fine. Come every week. Come for weeks and weeks and weeks and check Christianity out from the inside and really assess, is this something you want to consider? But if you want to actually join Christianity, become a member of the church and be baptized and say, I follow Jesus, I want to stick my name next to Jesus and all the rest of you Christians, well, then that's a whole different story. We can't tolerate all those beliefs and call ourselves Christians in the local church. I hope you're seeing that difference. The Bible teaches us to love and respect all the people in the world, even when they disagree with us even when they are growing completely intolerant of us in the name of tolerance. Oh, the irony of our modern age. If you want to think more about this, I'd recommend Don Carson's book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, where he simply points out that our modern culture has redefined tolerance. It no longer means that we can agree to disagree with people. It means that we all have to agree that the people who are promoting tolerance are right. That everybody has a valid view, and therefore all views are equally valid. That's just not true. Tolerance used to mean that we can agree to disagree with one another. I can look at a Muslim person across the table from me and say, I think you need to believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the only Savior. No other name under salvation which man can be saved except through him. You will not find salvation through the Quran and through Islam, and he can strongly disagree with me, and I can still love him and respect him and talk to him in a polite way and not argue, yell, and get angry and nasty. Jesus is on his throne. Trust in him. Speak the gospel. 
and not feel like Christianity is depending on your conversion of each person. Jesus will do that. So make sure you see that Jesus is upset that the seduction is not going on with the world, but with the members of his church, my servants. And therefore, he cannot allow tolerance of the church members to just let those behaviors, beliefs, and activities go on. I have this against you, that you tolerate sexual immorality. You should not tolerate that in the church. I have this against you, that you tolerate the teachings of idolatry. So in other words, unity in the church does not mean tolerance of everyone's beliefs. The church should at times take stances, put our flag down. Yes, we believe this. But this is tricky, isn't it? Especially within the church. These next few comments are talking about the disagreements that sometimes we have as members of the church, and I think it'd be helpful pastorally, especially in the day and age that we're living in with social media and all kinds of disagreements about all sorts of things, for a few comments pastorally to think about these issues. So I'm going to give you a few practical examples of what we can and cannot tolerate as church members here at Embassy Church. Example number one, we cannot tolerate abortion. It is murder as far as we can understand it. It is evil, and no matter how someone wants to paint the picture, by making it sound less offensive and calling it reproductive rights and woman's health, it still remains to be an obscenely terrible act of murder. We can't tolerate abortion. We can, we can tolerate people who have had an abortion and are repentant of their sins and are overwhelmed by the brokenness of the guilt and pain of having an abortion. Absolutely, we can tolerate someone who has had an abortion. But we cannot tolerate a church member who is thinking and deciding, should I or should I not have an abortion? And then go on with it after receiving counsel from the church and being told clearly this is murder. And then say, yes, I'm a Christian who kills babies. Those two things should not be seen side to side. We can tolerate the different approaches that Christians might take to try and end abortion. We do not all have to be in agreement at whether we need to go to the March for Life every year, whether we should be protesting at women's abortion clinics, whether we should be promoting crisis pregnancy centers. There's different strategies in the world for how we can attack this issue or fight against this lie. But we don't have to agree on the approach. Second example. We can tolerate someone who says that they, a Christian, but they're struggling with same-sex attraction and fighting addictions of pornography, and they have questions about their gender. We can tolerate someone who is struggling through difficult questions about their identity and their feelings and their thoughts. You, you are welcome to not just come and attend. You are welcome to be a member of this church if you have a humble, repentant attitude and say, God, I need help and figuring these issues out. We should tolerate that. We cannot tolerate someone who says they are a Christian, but unrepentantly, 
knows what the Bible says, studied the issue, and continues to engage in sexual and moral practices, including but not limited to adultery, pornography, homosexuality, and sex out of marriage. That we can't tolerate. Jesus makes that quite plain, doesn't he? You tolerate sexual immorality. Stop it. Judgment is coming on those who do not. But I hope you see the big difference between someone saying, my identity is in my gender, my identity is in my sexuality, versus somebody who says, my identity is found in who God says I am. Those are two different categories. We can tolerate the person who says, look, I want to find out what God has said about me, versus I would like to let my determination of my thoughts and feelings be ultimate over anything else. Don't tell me that I'm something else. I have determined that. That is a proud person that needs broken by God's law. We cannot tolerate that as a member of this church. Example number three. We cannot tolerate people who call themselves Christians and want to get married to someone of the same gender. Now, that might seem like the same example, but it's not. We cannot tolerate church members who would like to get married to someone of the same gender. We can tolerate church members who respond differently to those people around them in the culture who would like to get married to someone of the same gender. For example, some of you may not want to see Beauty and the Beast this weekend or following weekend. Other people feel like it's fine. We as Christians, I don't think, need to add that to our statement of faith on whether we agree about beauty and the beast. Nor should you pass judgment on those who use their Christian freedom in that way. I've not seen the movie. I don't even know if I have plans to. But at this point, the point is, there are a lot of things that we can agree to disagree as Christians as we respond to this issue in the world. Some of you will be invited to weddings. Some of you will say, I cannot go to that wedding. Others of you will think that it would be unloving if I don't. We as Christians can agree to disagree on how those policies get played out in our everyday lives. We should not pass judgment on some of those matters. We should talk about them honestly, without hatred, with love. Some of us will feel that our consciences are violated if we provide any goods or services for somebody who is getting married at a gay wedding. Photography, for example. Others will think that it's fine. It's just a good or service. doesn't matter who it is. And we should allow room as Christians to think through those. Last example, one more. We cannot tolerate racism, bigotry, prejudice against people of other races, religions, or ethnicities. The mission of our church, as it's playing on that poster, is to glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples of all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, We cannot then tolerate if the very center and the heart of our church is all nations and all peoples, we cannot tolerate racism or bigotry or prejudice against peoples of other ethnicities. If you call yourself a Christian and want to join this church, you need to realize that we love Muslims. We love Jews. We love blacks and Asians and Hispanics. We love all peoples in the whole world. And if you're here and you're a visitor, you may feel like, well, it doesn't sound like love. Well, then we need to have a conversation about what love is. Because obviously Jesus can commend the church for their love and rebuke them for their tolerance 
of beliefs that are contrary to His gospel in the church. God so loved the world, He gave His Son. Love is about sacrifice and laying down your life for other people, and that's what we should do for the nations. Literally lay down our lives for the sake of spreading the gospel. Send missionaries out like we just recently did this past year, not knowing what will happen to them when they go. That's love, and we love the nations that much. But do not confuse our love for the nations like that to say that we now all have to have agreement on Donald Trump's travel ban from certain nations and policies that the government makes on immigration. We should tolerate the differences of opinion that Christians might have about these different political issues. You could lean more politically left or right or independent or moderate and be a member of this church. We can tolerate those things. Morally speaking, most conservatives have taken stances on abortion, and so that's why a lot of evangelical churches typically tend to lean more right or conservative. But that does not mean you need to be a Republican to be a member of this church, and you should not confuse Republican political party with evangelical Christianity. Those are not one and the same. Well-meaning Christians can be democratic in their economic policies or immigration policies and have good, thoughtful arguments about it, and so we should tolerate those and talk through them and look at Scripture and do it with love. These are just a few of, of the many examples and hot-button topics. Should I touch any more, or are we hot enough? I hope this is helpful, and if you need more clarity on this, then we refer to our statement of faith and church covenant, which does land our, our flag on the ground and say, this is what we believe. We will not have tolerance on people that disregard the Trinity and say the Scriptures aren't truly God's Word and deny penal substitutionary atonement on the cross. We can't tolerate that. And so that's why that statement is having some length, it's a few pages, but it's not a whole book. And there are a lot of places that we don't address in the statement of faith and church covenant, and there's lots of room for us to agree to disagree, even in the church. And that's what those tools are for. Point number two. A healthy church will be a unified church in Jesus Christ, so unity in the church will occur when Christ reigns supreme in the church. Unity in the church will occur when Christ is supreme up on stage, when He's supreme in your heart, and He is supreme all throughout our weeks. So I want to conclude this message with a few points of looking at Jesus Christ reigning as supreme over all. I want you to notice that in this passage, His encouragement for a divided church is the reminder that Jesus Christ is King. So on the front end and on the back end of this letter are encouragements and reminders. Consider Jesus. First observation from this text. Look at verse 18 in the greeting. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. If I were to give you a quiz... And I were to ask, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? I would guess most of you say that means he's just 
the second person of the Trinity. He's divine, like he is God. I don't want you to tell you that you would fail the quiz, because that is correct, but that's not what he means when he says Son of God. Most often, Son of God in Scripture refers to a phrase that's used all through the Old Testament and would have been known in the original hearers' minds, Son of God equals King. And not like King, God King, like just King, like human King. Son of God was a phrase used to talk about kings. In fact, Caesar called himself Caesar Augustus, the Son of God. So they would have known quite well who's king in the land. And that son of God would have been used as that reference. But Jesus comes and he says, remember, I'm the son of God. I'm the real king. I'm the real Caesar. Caesar is just a little puppet. He has no power. I have all power and authority. That's the first thing is that Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is king. Now, if you think, now, are you making that up? No. And I'm getting that from this text, not just from there, but if you read the other half of it, look down at when he quotes Psalm 2. In verse 26 of chapter 2, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And, he will, and when these earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That is a direct quotation from Psalm 2. Now, if you have a quick memory and not short-term memory loss, You'll remember, we just read Psalm 2 to open the service, and Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that was sung when a new king of Israel was being put into power. And they would say, kiss the king, the son of God. And they didn't mean Jesus. They meant the Messiah, which is the word in there, the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2. Adore him, kiss him, bow down before him. He will rule with an iron scepter and he will crush all the nations. The problem is there was no human king that could live up to that title or that psalm. But there was one who did come, who would rule with an iron scepter. His name is Jesus. And he came first in humility as a man. And he was the king of the Jews who died in our place. The king became a servant. The king became a slave. The king humbled himself and gave up all that authority in heaven that the Father gave him so that you and I could have authority. Second observation. Jesus is the king of all creation because he is omniscient and knows everything. Do you notice that phrase? He has the eyes of a flame of fire. That's intense. Like, I get excited when I think about those descriptions of Jesus. I don't know if you do, but I do. Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. That doesn't mean he, he doesn't have gentle eyes. Read through the Gospels and notice when the rich young ruler turns away from Jesus, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. The look of Jesus is certainly gentle and merciful and compassionate. The point here is that you have sinners and they're going on in unrepentant sin and Jesus wants to remind them, I also have eyes like a flame of fire. 
I also see through all of your hypocrisy. I also see through all of your hidden sins. Oh, you say you just judge the heart and this will be okay. No, I'm seeing clearly what your heart looks like and it is sick. If you want an explanation of this phrase, eyes like flame of fire, I think we get it in the next few verses. Look at verse 23 when he says, and then I will strike her children dead. Now that doesn't mean Jesus is striking babies dead. We just talked about how abortion is bad. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about striking the disciples, the children of Jezebel's teaching, so the people that are following. He's saying that I will bring judgment on those who don't repent of Jezebel's teaching, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. That's what eyes of the flame of fire mean. I search the mind and heart. I know all. I am the omniscient God, and you cannot play games with me. So I've not been a pastor for 40 years, but I've been a pastor long enough to know that every single week, without a doubt, there's probably somebody in church, whether here or somewhere else, that's calling themselves a Christian, and they're just playing games. Playing games that, well, I fooled Pastor Phil. I'll fool my friends. And we won't know right now. That's why you're not on church discipline. But in a year from now, we'll all know because you'll be on church discipline. Jesus will know. He's always known. There's no point in playing games. There's no point in pretending and acting like you're getting away with something. And even if you get away from it here on this earth, there is this thing called the judgment of Jesus, and you will stand before him. Jesus is king over all creation. He knows. And that is both comforting, as we considered last week, and terrifying. Observation number three about Jesus as king. He is the king who judges with perfect justice. His feet are like burnished bronze. He will trample over all of his enemies with those burnished bronze feet. They won't grow weary. They won't get hurt. He will step over them and on them if he has to. Look at verse 22 where it says that he will bring judgment. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. What I love about the justice of God when he brings judgment is the phrase I've used throughout the Genesis series, poetic justice. Meaning they get exactly what they deserve. So notice the language here. It's imagery, it's symbolic, but it's symbolic of the poetic justice that these people deserve. Exactly what they deserve. Oh, so you like sleeping in beds, do you? You seem to like being in beds with other people that aren't your husband or wife. Well, I'll throw you into a sick bed and you die. See what he's doing here? God's justice continually gives people exactly what they wanted. That's what Romans 1 is all about. He gives them over to their sins and they receive the just reward of those sins. His judgments will be just and exactly what people deserve. And his judgments, this is the sweetest thing you will hear all morning. They're so unfair in some respect. Did you notice when he said, I have given her time to repent, and I'm giving them time to repent. 
unless they repent. This whole letter is a warning to encourage them to repent. His justice has not fully even come yet. If you're hearing my voice this morning, Jesus' justice has not fully come yet. You still have time to repent and quit playing games with God. So repent. I plead with you. I I encourage you to realize that this king is unlike any other king. He will bring justice, but he will also give mercy. How, How patient is God? How patient has he been with your sin? Think back, this just last week. Can you think of a time where you're like, yeah, I sinned. Did God strike you down right then and there with death? Did he strike you down with what you exactly deserved? How patient has he been? How much time has he given to you for you to repent? It is unbelievable the long length of his patience. What a patient king. And not judging us right away, exactly as we deserve, right in the moment. None of us would be here if that were the case. Fourth and final observation about Jesus as king. Jesus is the king who delegates and shares his authority with us. Good chapter 2, verse 25. Hold fast until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. To him I will give authority over the nations. That psalm was supposed to be about the king having authority over the nations and ruling. But keep reading and notice he will rule with a rod of iron. And earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from heaven. And I will give him the morning star. The one who overcomes the church, the members of the church, will rule over the nations. Because Christ will give ruling authority back to the image bearers he originally gave ruling authority to. One way to think about the whole story of Scripture is that in the beginning, God made the earth. And he made it with humans who were prince and princesses of the king of all creation. And we were to rule and subdue the whole earth. But instead, we let the earth crush us. And we now are in subjection to the earth. We are now under its tyranny. We are under its curse of sin. We now are subjected to the slavery of the, flash, the passions of our flesh. We are not ruling over. It is ruling over us. How many of you have ruled over death in your life? See anybody that you know that has conquered and rule over death? Got that one figured out? No, we are subjected to the creation. How many of you have rule over all of the internal sinful passions and the lusts of your heart? You completely ruled over that on your own strength? Or do you feel so helpless at times? Like, why do I keep doing this? That's sin. But God brought into the sinful world that is subjected to the creation, a human being who would redeem creation to the subjection of that slavery, and he did that by becoming a slave on a cross and dying for our sins. He was the true image of God. That's how the scriptures speak of him. He is the image bearer who is the ruler over all creation, and he gave up all of that ruling authority so that you and I could get it back. 
He rose again from the dead. He did conquer death. Remember when I asked that question? How many of you have ruled over death? Jesus did. And then he gives that ruling authority, the bright morning star to you so that you can be a prince and princess with him again. That's why the New Testament calls us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Co-heirs with Jesus the King. I wonder how many of you are struggling with thoughts about yourself that do not line up with Scripture. You are, in fact, a prince and a princess. If you are in Christ, and you can rule over those passions of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can make your body now the slave. That's the whole picture of the gospel. And this is what Jesus offers in his final words to Thyatira. This king is good. Like really good. His judgments are good. His mercy has no limits. No matter what you've done, no matter what sins you've struggled with, and we will have unity as a church when we see Jesus as worthy. I don't have to agree on all these little details that we talked about earlier, but we will have great unity when this gospel is proclaimed week after week and we continue weekly to worship and say, yes, that's our king. I may disagree with you about beauty and the beast, but I agree with all of you in this room, Jesus Christ is my king. That's what we do, week in and week out. And failure to preach the gospel of Christ as king and assuming it, I think will lead to great divisions in this church. So let's pray and let's ask that God would keep us centered on Christ as our king till he returns. Let's pray that now in Jesus' name.